Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians and we come to the middle of chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, I'll be reading verses 17 through 24. Hear the word of God. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. I will admit to you that after almost 30 years of preaching the Word of God, I sometimes repeat my stories. And I'm going to tell you in advance, I know that I just told you this story a few months ago, so bear with me as I repeat it again. I know some of you didn't hear it the first time. After I had been in my first pastorate for a few years, I began to become, as a lot of young guys fresh out of seminary do, I began to be impatient with my congregation and discontent in my work. And I felt a desire to go find a new ministry, to get another start somewhere else. And soon I had the opportunity to leave my church in western Pennsylvania and go to a church in Kansas City. Well, I spent many months wrestling with that question. And as part of my prayers and wrestling, I did what a lot of you do. I took out a sheet of paper and started making a list of the pros and the cons. The pros of going to Kansas City and the cons of going to Kansas City. The pros of staying and the cons of staying. And as they typically do, the list became very, very long. And matter of fact, they became very frustrating because they stayed pretty equal in length on both sides in both lists and to the point where it seemed like they were the pros and the cons were balancing each other out perfectly and, in essence, canceling each other out. So finally, in my frustration, I went to my good friend Bob, who was a member of another church in town. I had to go talk to somebody else in another church because it's not the kind of thing you want to go to talk to somebody in your own church about. So I said to Bob, I said, I'm really wrestling with this opportunity to go to Kansas City. Should I go there or should I stay here? And I showed him, I laid out my list, my long list of pros and cons. I was hoping that by 
reading carefully those lists and deciphering, discerning from his objective perspective, he could give me something that was obvious that I was missing. But he didn't even hardly look at them. Matter of fact, his response was to laugh at me. I said, Bob, this is serious. I'm really wrestling with this. Why are you laughing at me? And I'll never forget the words he said. He said, Dan, God cares a lot less about your circumstances than you do. Just be faithful where you are, and he'll bless you no matter where that is. Just be faithful where you are, and he will bless you wherever that is. Now, I have to admit, as a, somebody fresh out of seminary, I winced a little bit at the theological idea that God cares less about my circumstances than I do, but there was a powerful truth in the midst of that, a truth that unburdened me of the burden of feeling like I needed to figure out every detail of God's will for my life that I just needed to stop worrying so much about my circumstances, trust God where I am, and be faithful whether I stay or go, trusting that God is going to bless that. I could please God in both places. That was a new thought to me. We sometimes get paralyzed by our detailed analysis of our lives, trying to discern all the specifics of God's will. A few years ago, Kevin DeYoung, a 30-something pastor who's now in the PCA, wrote a book to other 30-somethings and 20-somethings about one of the big issues that he saw in their generation, something that was leading to their reputation that this 20-somethings and 30-somethings had been developing of having a fear of commitment and being indecisive about their life. He wrote the book, it's called Just Do Something. And let me read to you just a couple of paragraphs from the introduction to that book. DeYoung says, The hesitancy so many of us feel in making decisions and settling down in life and therefore diligently searching for the will of God has at least two sources. First, the new generations enjoy, or at least they think they enjoy, unparalleled freedom. Nothing is settled after high school or even college anymore. Life is wide open and filled with endless possibilities. But with this sense of opportunity comes confusion, anxiety, and indecision. With everything I could do and everywhere I could go, how can I know what's what? Enter a passion to discern God's will for my life, quote-unquote. That's a key reason why there's always a market for books about the will of God. Secondly, our search for the will of God has become an accomplice in the postponement of growing up a convenient way out for young or even old Christians floating around through life without direction or purpose. Too many of us have passed off our instability, inconsistency, and endless self-exploration as quote-unquote looking for God's will, as if not making up our minds and meandering through life were marks of spiritual sensitivity. As a result, we are full of passivity and empty on follow-through. We're tinkering around with everyone and everything, Instead, when it comes to our future, we should take some responsibility, make a decision, and just do something. It's very similar to what Paul is trying to say in this passage in front of me. Matter of fact, as I sat down to really dig into my studies in this passage this week, I got excited. That's why I wanted to tell you that story again, even though I told it recently. Because 
for the first time, I'd kind of taken this passage somewhat lightly in the past. I hadn't really dug into it before. When I really did, I found out this was the source of my friend Bob's wisdom. This is where he got it from, if nowhere else. Because it's exactly what Paul is saying. It's not hard to find Paul's main point. When you're studying a passage of scripture, that's the first thing you want to do is say, what's the point of this passage? Of, what's the Holy Spirit saying in this passage? What's the main point? It's not hard to find it. Sometimes it is. But in this passage, it's not at all hard because Paul repeats it three times. He says it in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Remain in the circumstances in which you are called. Now that sounds like it's more defining, but you're going to see as we work through it that actually Paul is saying the same thing that my friend Bob was saying. Be faithful where you are, no matter where that is. Don't be so concerned about your circumstances. In the first part of the chapter, we looked at last week, the first 16 verses, Paul addressed believers in the Corinthian church who were dealing with the issue of marriage. He talked to those Christians who were married to other Christians. He talked to those who were unmarried, single people, or widowed people, or widowers. And then he talked to Christians that were in mixed marriages with unbelievers. So he talked to three different groups of people. But the theme, the common theme in his instructions to all three groups was essentially what he's saying here, which is stay where you are. Be faithful where you are. Maintain the status quo in your circumstances. If you're married, you must not get divorced. If you're single, it's a very good option to stay single. And if you're married to an unbeliever, you're a believer who's married to an unbeliever, stay with your spouse unless they abandon you. And so staying is is the common theme to all three groups. Stay and be faithful where you are. And so here in verse 17, he's generalizing. He's actually now addressing the whole church. Saying if you become a Christian, your relationship with Christ is not about your circumstances, it's about your heart. And so stay is a very good option. Matter of fact, one, one commentator, I thought this was very well worded. He makes the comment on Paul's three, point, three times he states the same thing. Gordon Fee, this commentator, says, Paul means that when God calls a person within a given situation, that situation is taken up in the call and thus sanctified to him or her. I just like that thought, that when God calls a sinner like you and me to himself and saves us, He also, in a sense, sanctifies our situation, which he calls us. That our environment, our relationships, our vocation, whatever these things might be, somehow come into contact with the truth of God and the gospel of God because we're in it when he calls us to himself. And so we need to take seriously the possibility that God's will is to just stay. And be faithful where we are. Now, we're going to see in a moment that he doesn't say always stay. It sounds like it at first, but that's not what he's saying, that you must always stay where you are. But he wants us to seriously consider that our current 
situation, our current circumstances when called to know Christ is our first priority in our ministry. This is countercultural. We live in a culture where upward mobility is a core value, where we seek constant change for the better. We're taught from a very young age that we should keep seeking a better option, a better job, a better car, a better house, a better neighborhood, even a better spouse. That's the kind of culture we live in. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, so keep striving for it. And the result is that we're never content. And we never embrace our circumstances as part of God's calling for our life. And our lives are driven more by wanderlust than faithfulness. And so Paul's going to seriously lay before us the option of staying and being faithful. Embrace your circumstances. Paul mentions God's call to us nine times in these verses. Very short passage, but nine times he mentions God's call to us. But you have to recognize that he's actually defining God's call in two different ways. Sometimes when he talks about God's call of us, he's speaking of God's effectual call. He chooses us before the foundation of the world, and then he sends his spirit to give us new birth, to regenerate our hearts, to open our eyes and open our ears, and to to cause us to come to faith in Christ so that we can walk in his ways. That's the effectual call of God. It's the work of God, the sovereign work of God alone. But then he also talks about the call of God, and in that case we're talking about being born again, regeneration. The second sense in which he uses the phrase the call of God is the sense in which we talk about vocation. The word vocation comes from the Latin word for call. The idea that you're called to certain circumstances. You're called to a certain job. You're called to certain relationships. And so in the first call of God, he's talking about salvation, but in the second call of God, he's referring to your vocation life. But by vocation, I don't mean only job. That's the way we tend to take the word. It doesn't mean only your job, though. It's your marriage. It's your neighborhood. It's the the physical gifts, the, the spiritual gifts, whatever circumstances God has ordained and brought into your life, that's your vocation, that's your calling. Your social status, your income status, these all things make up your calling from God. Circumstances sovereignly arranged by God. To illustrate his point, Paul is going to use two examples, one from the church life or religious life of these Corinthian Christians, and another one from their quote-unquote secular life, their life outside the church. Let's look at first at the example he uses or the illustration he uses from their life in the church. Verse 18, he picks up on a hot topic in the first century church. He wants to talk about circumcision, but what he's really talking about when he brings up the issue of circumcision is the relationship between the Jews, the Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, and Gentile Christians in the church. And you know, if you know the New Testament at all, this was a huge issue. How did a Gentile gain acceptance in the church? Did they have to keep all the Jewish ceremonial laws which were fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Much of the New Testament is written on that topic. And Paul and the other apostles make it very clear that Christ dying on the cross and being raised from the dead fulfilled the ceremonial laws. And so these external religious rites of the old covenant are done away with. 
and they have been fulfilled in the new covenant. That was a, the, the issue of Jew and Gentile, Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian relations and what we, uh, Christians should observe of the Old Testament law and not observe was a desperately important issue in and around Jerusalem and Judea. But interestingly, we don't have any evidence that it was an issue in Corinth. And so what we know is Paul is actually taking kind of a safe, controversial issue, but a safe issue in Corinth because people could be objective about it, not emotional, no emotional baggage to work through. And he could illustrate his point about what it means to be acceptable to God, what it means to serve God, by dealing with something that had been shifted from the law of God in the Old Testament to something that was circumstantial in the New Covenant, being circumcised. And so he basically says, you know, circumcision was a sign of belonging to the church community. The apostles taught that it was replaced in the New Covenant by baptism. So if someone was uncircumcised, should they be circumcised? Or is, there, is it detrimental for a Christian to be considered circumcised. And that's the issue he alludes to. And he says in verse 19, he cuts right through all of it, and he says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Because keeping the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were now not required under the New Covenant, it didn't matter. If you're Jewish and that's your, what you're used to, don't worry about it. Don't try, try to be a Gentile in your circumstances. If you're a Gentile, don't try to be Jewish in terms of the ceremonial law. Be faithful where God has called you. Spiritually speaking, in terms of your relationship with God, it was irrelevant. It's interesting, that's how Paul treated circumcision in the New Testament. In one case, he says to the Galatian Christians who said you had to be circumcised in order to be saved, in order to know God, he said you are condemned if you're trusting in Jewish ceremonial law in order to be accepted by God. That is a works salvation. He says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you, and every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. But on the other hand, he said to Timothy, who was a born of a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, and he wasn't circumcised, he said, go be circumcised so that you can go minister to the, Gen to the Jews so that they will accept you, so you can preach the gospel. So Paul is saying essentially what he's saying here. It's irrelevant in terms of your relationship with God, in terms of your acceptance with God. doesn't matter. We do that. We set up things that we feel we need to do, things we have to have in our lives that we need to have or to do or to wear in order to be spiritually elite, in order to be close to God. I remember when I first got saved, I was a junior in high school, and for Christmas that year, after I was saved by the Lord, all I wanted was a Bible, my own Bible for a change. I wanted a Bible, and I wanted one of those big crosses to hang around my neck. And I don't mean one of those little ones that kind of hangs up here, but I mean a big one that hung down here <laughs> long before rappers made them popular. That's the kind of cross I wanted because I was so anxious. I was on fire for the Lord. I wanted to identify with the Lord. I wanted to, to get close to the Lord and be a great Christian and be a great witness among my friends who didn't know the Lord. And that's fine for youthful enthusiasm and naivety for a new Christian. But I had to learn that that big cross around my neck didn't draw me closer to God or make me a better Christian. And that's really what Paul's saying about circumcision. 
Becoming a Christian means repenting of your sin, but it doesn't mean repenting of your culture, if your culture is not inherently sinful. Becoming a Christian means repenting of your sin, but not repenting of your culture. Remember the man named Legion? Remember how he got the name Legion? Because he was possessed by many demons. And when Christ cast the demons out of him, do you remember what he got on his knees and begged Christ for? He said, Lord, take me with you. I want to be with you always. I want to minister right beside you. Remember what Jesus said to him? Go back to your hometown. Go back to your family. Go back to your life and be a light there. That's very similar to what Paul is saying to these Corinthian Christians. Saying, be faithful where you are. Serve the Lord where you are. That doesn't mean he's not going to change your circumstances in the future. But just be faithful where you are. Monasteries were very popular in the early church because people thought that when they became Christians, they should go off and study the Bible and pray all day. And that way they would get close to God and serve God in that way. They learned in a hurry that all their issues they took with them into the monastery. It wasn't about their circumstances, it was about their heart. Most new Christians go through that missionary phase. You think you're saved, you think you want to serve the Lord, so you've got to go serve the Lord in Africa or, or Eastern Europe or, or Russia. You know, if you're really, you're really going to be a Christian, you need to go change your circumstances so you can get closer to God and be a better witness. But vast majority of the time, not always, but the vast majority of the time, the Lord's message to the new believer is go back to your hometown, go back to your family, go back to your circumstances and be faithful there and trust the Lord to bless you. Well, how about your lives outside the church? How about contentment in the world? Paul addresses that with his second illustration, verse 21. This was very relevant in the first century. He wants to talk about slavery. We don't have a lot of slavery that's still out there. Certainly is slavery still in the world, but it's not in our immediate context very much. We don't deal with slavery on a day-to-day basis here in State College. Paul says, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Now that grates on American ears because especially in the last couple of generations, we've been taught the evils of American slavery and it certainly was evil. All slavery is evil. But it is important to point out that Greco-Roman slavery in the first century wasn't the same as American slavery. It was evil, it was bad, it was a sin, but it wasn't the same as the worst examples of American slavery that we've imagined. First of all, in a given Roman city, uh, one out of five to one out of three persons in that city were slaves. It was a huge part of the culture. Secondly, even though they were very definitely the bottom rung of society, and as slaves, they were considered by the law as property, they had no rights. And those those are wrong, they're bad, but Generally, they were treated better in the first century Roman culture than American slaves were treated, especially in the worst cases. They had more freedom than American slaves tended to have. They had a steady income, although it wasn't great. And they had often a comfortable home to live in, in their master's home. Some, a lot of them had education. So it was bad, it was evil, but it was not the kind of slavery that we tend to think of. Well, Paul says to those slaves in the first century, you've come to Christ, you belong to Christ, you're a child of God, 
but you're a slave. Don't be concerned about it. Don't be all caught up in getting out of your circumstances. That's hard for us to hear when we think of slavery. He expands on his instructions, though, over in Ephesians 6. Listen to what he says to the slaves there. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. You hear what I'm saying? That's the same exact instruction he's giving over in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're called to the Lord and you come to know the Lord, you're born again, you're a new Christian, and you're a slave, serve the Lord, don't serve man. Serve your master in a way that is consistent with serving the Lord. And look to the Lord for your reward. Be faithful in your circumstances, as hard as they may be. And it's interesting that Peter doesn't change the message in talking to slaves that had abusive or evil masters. Listen to what he says to those who abused, to servants who had abusive masters in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, beginning in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Sometimes being called by God to certain circumstances means being called by God to very difficult circumstances. But God is sovereign. These slaves didn't have options. They couldn't choose freedom. They didn't have the option. But did you notice Paul says, if you give the, are somehow given the opportunity to be free, take, take it. Go after it if freedom is made available to you. But until then, be faithful where you are. I'm fascinated by how Paul dealt with the issue of slavery. And I think there is some instruction here for us in a culture about how to seek change. Paul didn't call upon the church to take up arms to end slavery. Paul didn't call upon the church to look to worldly means to bring about change in culture. He says, put your trust in the gospel. In Galatians 3, 28, he says that worldly social status is meaningless in the kingdom of God. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a powerful truth that will change society. He says essentially the same thing in verse 22. Did you notice that? Verse 22, he says, the slave, the one who is a slave in his circumstances in this fallen world, is free in Christ. Free in the most important senses of freedom. He's free from guilt. He's free from shame. He's free from the power of sin. He's free from the power of death. That's true freedom. And he goes on to say that the freed man, in other words, the slave, who is a Christian, who has been given that opportunity to be free in this world, is still a slave of Christ. So being free in Christ doesn't mean you do whatever you want to do to go your own way and your own selfish agenda, but you are free to obey Christ as Lord and Savior. 
unless we miss the point that underlies it all, he says in verse 23, you were bought with a price, which is the blood of Christ. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. Do not become slaves of men. You see, Paul says to Christians, be faithful where you are, even in very difficult circumstances, and trust in God to bring about change through the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the slave owner Philemon? He had a slave named Onesimus. Philemon was a Christian, very, very, very influential, very important to the church in Colossae. But he, had, he was a slave owner, as hard as that may be for us to understand. And he had a slave who ran away, a slave named Onesimus. And after Onesimus ran away, he came into contact with Paul in his preaching and teaching and became a Christian. And Paul, interestingly, doesn't say to Onesimus, you're free in Christ, therefore go live in freedom. He says, go back to Philemon and be faithful to Philemon. That's your social obligation. Those are your circumstances. Go and be faithful and serve Philemon as you serve the Lord. But do you remember what he said to Philemon when he wrote the letter that accompanied Onesimus back to his household? This is what Paul said to Philemon, the slave owner. He says he should receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. Because in Christ there is no slave nor free. That's the theological truth the truth of the gospel that ended slavery in the Roman Empire. That's the truth of the gospel that ended slavery in the British Empire. That's the truth of the gospel that ended slavery in the American experience. And meanwhile, while God brought about that change in culture and society, a big part of that were Christian slaves in each one of those settings just living faithfully and serving the Lord in their circumstances, no matter how difficult they were. Which brings us to the key to contentment in any circumstances, which is recognizing the Lord of your circumstances. When we say in church or we say in any other setting, Jesus is Lord, what are we saying? We're saying he is the one who assigns to me all of my circumstances. And he is the one whose will I seek to live by. In verse 17, Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. The Lord Jesus Christ assigns to us our lot in life. He is the Lord of our circumstances. No one is the victim of our circumstances. Now it sounds at first, I want to go back to that point, that sounds like Paul is saying the three times he says, remain where you are and be faithful. Sounds like he's, say, like he's setting up kind of a Christian caste system like they have in India, where if you're not born physically, but if you're born again into a certain set of circumstances, you're stuck there. You can't ever get out of it. That's not what he's saying. Clearly that's not what he's saying, but in the, because in the context, he tells people that change is an option sometimes. He says to those back in the beginning of the chapter, single people can marry if they decide that that's where the Lord is leading them. That Christians who are married to an unbelieving spouse are not bound to that marriage if the unbelieving spouse abandons them. He says to the slave, if you're given an opportunity to be free by God's providence, take it, go for it. So change certainly is possible. But what he's saying is that changing your circumstances is irrelevant to your primary calling to love God and to love your neighbor. 
And changing your circumstances is not going to make you a better Christian. It's not going to make you a more spiritual person. And it's not going to draw you closer to God. That comes through the word of God and through the spirit. Drawing close to God comes by faith, which comes through the word of God and through the spirit. In verse 19, do you notice how he defines God's will in verse 19 at the end of the verse? It's keeping the commandments of God. That's what's important. That's one of the most important things. I talk to people all the time that are trying to find God's will for their lives. Especially in times of transition, especially in a town like this, there's lots of people on transition. They want to know what God's will for their life is. Who am I supposed to marry? What job am I supposed to take? Where am I supposed to live? My first word of advice is always say, keep the commandments of God. Because you know God's will for every important part of your life right here. This is God's will for your life. It's all written in here. Everything you need to know to be faithful, to love God and to love your neighbor is here. So focus on God's revealed will because you've got it right in front of you. And then as you are faithful in your current circumstances, seeking this will of God in your life, I guarantee you what's going to happen is that God's going to direct your steps. Part of the way that he blesses you is that he directs your steps. Do you trust him? Be faithful in your circumstances and trust him for your future circumstances. He will guide your steps. Probably not on your timeline. Probably not according to your agenda perfectly. But he will guide you. As my friend Bob said, God doesn't care as much about your circumstances as you do, or at least in the same way that you do. Just be faithful to him, and he will bless you where you are in whatever circumstances. I ended up leaving that first church in western Pennsylvania and going to Kansas City. Why in the world I would leave the best part of God's creation to go to the plains and barrenness of Kansas City, I don't know now, but I learned my lesson and came back soon after. But the important part to me wasn't whether I was serving the Lord in western Pennsylvania or serving him in Kansas. It was such a great relief to my soul after talking to my friend to understand that if I sought to obey God's commandments and to be faithful to him where I was, He was going to bless me, whether that was in western Pennsylvania or Kansas City. Didn't matter. What was really important was true no matter what my circumstances. It's not wrong to seek change in your circumstances, but understand that changing your circumstances won't change your heart. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God changes your heart. Changing your circumstances won't draw you closer to God and won't make you more faithful to God. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God does that. So if you're feeling discontent this morning in whatever stage of life you're in, I would just ask you to prayerfully, humbly ask yourself and the Lord, what are you looking for? What's driving that? Is the discontentment in me holy? Is it pleasing to God? Am I really trusting the Lord? And am I being faithful where I am? God doesn't care about your circumstances as much as you do. Just be faithful where you are, and whatever your circumstances, he will bless you for your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our impatience. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for buying into the the motivations and the creeds and the sales lines of our culture that always point us to the grass on the other side of the fence 
Lord, some of us here in this room are facing really difficult circumstances in the present. I pray for them that in your grace and in your time and in the best time, you would remove those difficult circumstances. But in the meantime, I pray that you would enable them to walk in faithfulness, to seek your will as it's revealed in your word, and to trust in the guidance of the Spirit. Lord, we do want your blessing upon our lives. We want to be found to be faithful. Lord, teach us to look to you for that and not to our circumstances. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.